Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Who can ever forget Winston Churchill's immortal words during the conflict of World War II and the battle against Nazi Germany and their attempted invasion of Great Britain when he said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and then the streets, we shall fight in the hills, which is where I'm from, the hills, the hills. How many of you say those words when you're on family vacations? Family trips? Let me say that again. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields, in the streets, and in the hills. As a family of six, my wife and I and our four kids, fighting, argumentation, Dysfunction, frustration has been par for the course. Yes, the pastor's family is imperfect. Every pastor's family is imperfect. Now, if you have a perfect family, I would love to talk with you after service and learn more about your keys to perfection. But we have never been a perfect family. There was a time period where I thought one of my children was demon-possessed. <laughs> and they can tell you about that whenever they feel like it. And she wasn't supposed to have known that until she became a young adult. She found out as a teenager and was utterly shocked. And you think I'm joking. <laughs> That's what makes this even funnier. We finished a series last month, actually last week, on... Love and marriage. And it was not an easy series for me to preach, and I know for many of you it was not an easy series to hear, and many of you might have even disagreed with me a time or two, depending on the context or content of the sermons that were preached. But thank you for sticking it out with me, for sticking it out with us and pushing through and learning, at least from our perspective, the vantage point of what God's ideal was for marriage where that ideal went off the rails, and where God attempted and actually achieved a restoration of that for those who would be willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So we leave that series and come into a new one called Family Dynamics. And the reality is, as we go over these next five weeks, we're going to look at the dysfunctional families of the Bible. Now, there's tons as I went through Genesis to Revelation and kind of perusing these different families of the Bible, it was hard to select which ones we wanted to highlight over the next five weeks. Suffice it to say, there were some that stood out among the rest. So today, we're going to be talking about the first family. Did you know the first family was dysfunctional? Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, 
We're going to look at the story of actually Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. We're talking one chapter over from Genesis 3, where in our love and marriage series, we saw where there was this blame game and this broken relationship between husband and wife. Guess what happens when there is a blame game and a brokenness within the marital union? Guess what can happen to the kids? There's a ripple effect that can happen. Some of you have been a part of that ripple effect. Some of you have been a part of that ongoing generational, what you might call generational sin, because there's a cycle that you're a part of or you've seen happen. And we all have a choice in the matter as to whether or not we're going to continue a cycle of behavior or to break a cycle of behavior. Some of you are probably living testimonies of breaking that cycle, and you've broken that cycle because God has helped you to get out of where you were and onto a path that he's chosen for you. And some of you may find yourself in the weary position of still being in a cycle of dysfunction, a cycle of frustration, a cycle of anger and hopelessness. And God doesn't want you to stay in that cycle. God doesn't want you to, let me say, repeat that cycle in your own life. I've always said this, and I'll continue to say it till I die, that we will not stand in account for another person's sin at the judgment, on the judgment day. We will stand in account for our sin and whether or not we believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. I won't be able to, and my, you've heard me say this over and over again. For your first time with us today, this may be the first time you're hearing it. I beg your pardon if you've heard this over and over again. But my relationship with my, with my stepdad was less than optimal. It was not great. He was not a believer until two years before he died. He died in 2018, so for 40 years of my life, he didn't understand why this son of his would become a pastor and try to milk people out of their money and play on the heartstrings of others to get them to cry and weep and this emotional torrent of just stupid nonsense. I wanted to break that cycle in my own life. He was my dad from the age of two on. I loved him. I still love him. And I'm only blessed by the fact that I will actually get to see him again, the one whom I thought I would never get to see. He broke a cycle. Even though it was two years before he died, he broke his own cycle because the family he grew up with, the situation he incurred is probably similar to many of your all stories or your parents' stories or your grandparents' stories. So I will give you this small little caveat before we get into Genesis 4 today. Every family has a level of dysfunction. Okay? Even Jesus' family. Guess what? His family is one of the ones we're going to be looking at. I know. Amen. I heard a little baby down front here. Out of the mouth of babes. Genesis 4, starting with verse 1. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife. Are we allowed to talk about that in the church? Okay, just making sure. (laughs) Yes! Hallelujah! I'm sorry, I just spit everywhere. 
Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. Isn't that interesting? What causes people to get pregnant? What causes women to get pregnant? Sexual relations. Just in case you were curious. She became pregnant when she gave birth, then she gave birth to Cain, and she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. I said that last year, it was at the beginning of this year, because I looked at this passage before, it sounds, (laughs) I grew up in Kentucky, and and there was a lot of twang going on around there, with with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. That's the way I read that, that's the way I see that, but I'm sure that's not how she said it. (laughs) With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. So Cain was the firstborn. Abel was second. Well, we aren't told, however, how many daughters there were in the midst of that. Did you know in ancient times, they never kept track of the girls that were born? Rarely. So more than likely, there were other children outside of Cain and Abel. This is where it gets really confusing because people say, I don't want to jump ahead. When we get to the end of this chapter, you'll see that Cain was afraid of other people. Well, if there's only four people, who would he be afraid of? Well, by this point, how, how long did Cain and, or Adam and Eve live? Hundreds of years. How long do we typically live? 70-ish years. At best, in our day and age, You could pop out maybe 20 kids in 70 years. I don't mean to be crass. I'm just being honest. Imagine if you could have hundreds of years to continue to have children. How many would you have? A lot. Somebody said something, and I I have a fear of missing out, and I want to be a part of that conversation. Jolene. I'm just, Huh? You said none? (laughs) All right, let's continue on. I've lost all sense of control. We'll get back to that. We'll circle back. Some of you are probably wondering, why in the world did we come here today? When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Well, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. What's the problem in that scenario? If you've heard me preach on this passage before, this is not our topic for today, but a lot of people get confused. That seems like it's very unfair to God to reject Cain and to accept Abel. Why did he do that? Well, it's in the wording. What did Cain bring to God? There's a key word. And if you look at it in the Hebrew, it means some. What did Cain, or what did Abel bring? It says he also brought a gift, but then there's added to it, he brought the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. It says he brought the fattened pieces, which are the acceptable best pieces. When you get a nice, if you're vegetarian or vegan, please just shut off for a minute. But when you get this nice ribeye steak, and somebody just moaned. (laughs) I heard like, oh, 
Like, I want that. I know, right? And you sizzle, you pan fry it, and then you put it in. What is the best portion? Some of you are like, ew, I hate the fat. I'm telling you, the fat's the best. When you, Because my kids will leave the meat and eat the fat off the edge of the steak. A couple of you believe that. So now, God... And you'll see, the, if you go to Leviticus, which is one of my favorite books, and I'm sure yours too, the fattened pieces were the best, and they were to be offered to God as a burnt offering. And so it says, Abel brought a gift, but, but it wasn't just some of the flock, it was actually the best portions of his flock. Have you ever been given a gift, and you know it was just... Uh, out of obligation. Does it feel good to receive a gift that's only given out of obligation? Does it feel good to get a gift that's only out of obligation? No, it's just say, like, oh, you had to get me this. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's arbitrary, really. I mean, the best gifts that we are given are the ones we don't expect and the ones that actually have some meaning behind them that there's thought and process to? How much more is the gift given when it's not expected, but it's given in a way that somebody just hits square dead center of who we are and say, oh, and you just are taken aback by the gift. And how, how do you feel when somebody just gives you, eh, yeah, I got you this, I mean, I don't know, whatever. There's a difference, isn't there? Sometimes we offer, this is not our sermon today, sometimes we offer God gifts like that, don't we? How do, you, how do you pray? Oh, Lord, thank you for our food. I don't know. I mean, maybe blessed or, and the ones that have prepared it. And, uh, amen. Shoot, we've got to get, it, got to get to our food. We're giving him second best on the front end before we even get into our food. Or, or what about, um, <laughs> dare I even go there. Uh, what about, and it, please understand when I say this, it's not about, going to church but if you could sit out in the freezing rain at a football stadium for three hours eating crummy food that's exorbitant in price and you get really ticked off when the pastor goes a little bit longer well actually I go long anyway but when he goes a little bit longer than he normally would because we're not going to beat the lunch crowd out or the football game's on today and I need to catch the pregame stuff you know Sorry, I just got off on a tangent there. But the reality is, what do we offer God? You're not offering it to me. You're not staying. If you are here because of me, you're here for the wrong reasons. I will always tell you that because I will not always be here. Not because I'm planning to leave anytime soon. Did you see that? That's disgusting. <laughs> not because I'm planning to leave anytime soon, but because the reality is I don't live forever. Even if I go to my dying breath, hopefully it's not on this stage, I won't be here forever. And if you're coming because of the guy on the stage or the lady on the stage or whomever, you're coming for the wrong reasons. If it's not for Christ and Christ alone, you're offering the wrong offering and the wrong gift to God. I digress. So God comes to Cain and says, why are you so angry? Like a parent coming to a child. Okay, what are you upset about this time? Right? Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Now, the interesting thing is God already knew. But he's wanting to see if Cain would articulate why he's so upset. God goes to verse 
We go to verse 7, and God says, You will be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. How are we at subduing sin that crouches at our door, that temptation that so easily tries to entice us into its snare? Do you keep the door shut or do you like, oh, I hear that scratching at the door. It sounds very creepy. Because <laughs> some of you like creepy things, right? You open, seriously, like temptation. Do you open the door just to see what's out there? Because you've already, you've already committed the first step in giving in to temptation. God says, sin is crouching at your door. You know what he's telling Cain? The same thing he told Adam and Eve. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat it, you'll die. Hey, Cain, the tree's gone at this point. What's done is done. But at this point forward, sin is crouching at your door. You have a choice in the matter. You could open it or keep it shut, but here's the deal. I'm telling you to keep it shut. I don't want you to incur the control of sin over your life. You need to master it. Don't do what your parents did. Don't continue in the same cycle that led to the place where you are now. Stop it. Break the cycle. Well, one day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out to the fields. I think he said it in a British accent. Hey, brother, let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother his brother Abel, and he killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? And again, I don't think it's because God doesn't have an idea where Abel is. I think he's also asking the way he did Adam and Eve. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Remember when, he asked, when God asked uh, Adam that in Genesis 3? Where's your brother, Cain? Where is he? I don't know, Cain responded. Now, I'm, I'm putting inflection there. But I also have kids, and you probably do too. And when they've done something, or remember when you were a kid and you did something and you got caught, but you're still trying to avoid the truth? What did you do? Nothing. Not nothing. Did you break? I don't know. <laughs> Listen, even as an only child, I couldn't cast the blame on a sibling. It was my imaginary friend. <laughs> and I'm back. All right, so where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, responded Cain. Am I my brother's, we usually call it keeper in the New Living Translation, it says guardian. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's overseer? Am I my brother's guardian? Do I have to know his whereabouts all the time? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your, your brother's blood, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. Whoa. Pause. Genesis 3, there were two mentions of curse in the punishment cycle. Do you remember where the curses popped up? 
The ground was cursed for Adam, and the serpent was cursed. But the only human, there was no human that was cursed in Genesis 3. The ground was cursed, the serpent was cursed, but Adam and Eve succumbed to the punishment of their own choices because of the consequences of their disobedience to God. But now, for the first time, Genesis 4, we hear that God says that Cain is cursed. That's powerful. It's not something we want to hear, but it's powerful. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground. That's crazy, because where were people created from? Where was Adam created from? The dust of the ground. Eve was created from the rib or the side of man. But by processes of creation, we know that the substance that man was created of, being dust of the ground that became animated to life because of the breath of God into the nostrils of man, also came into woman through the flesh and bone of man. But now the ground not only is cursed, but now Cain is cursed as well. It's almost like a double curse, isn't it? Because listen to how this plays out. You're banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. The ground was already cursed because of what Adam and Eve had done. They would, by the sweat of their brow, eke a living out from it. But now Cain is even punished from that. He's not even able to farm the land. He will be a scavenger, almost like a vulture that swoops down to take dead things. A wanderer, homeless, on the earth. And Cain replied, Oh Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And here's the question that everybody asks. Well, if Adam and Eve were the first people and Cain and Abel were the only kids, then who else on earth is going to kill him? And this is where we fail to see that there were only, for the purposes of this specific narrative, Cain and Abel pointed out because of the sin that happened between Cain and Abel. It doesn't mean there were no other children. And then you think, ooh, they had to marry their daughter or their, son, or their brothers and sisters? Yes, this is pre-law. We don't have the law of Moses yet. We don't have any law against what we would now deem incest. And so who would they procreate with? Male and female, family. And so they populated the earth. Now, Cain is worried. If somebody finds me, they're going to kill me. If you had a family member that murdered somebody else in your family, do you think you'd be happy with the murderer in your family? <laughs> so a couple of you shake your heads no, and some of you are like, well, it depends. Because <laughs> I saw the look on some of your faces. You should say no. I would not be happy no matter who it was in my family. But Cain is now worried, and rightly so. Because he's killed a family member and the rest of the family, extended family out even beyond that, are going to be like, oh yeah, Cain, uh -huh. if I see him. And so he's worried. 
My punishment's too great to bear. You've banished me from the land. I mean, I can't even, I can't even eke living out anymore. What am I going to do? Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. What do you think God thinks about murder? He doesn't like it. And that's putting it mildly. Even murderers, in this case, I don't want to over-blanket this whole scenario here, but the reality is, what is, what is God saying? No, 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 no. You shouldn't worry about being murdered by somebody else because anybody who murders you, I'll give a seven-fold punishment to. So the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn everyone who might try to kill him. We don't know what this mark is. We aren't told what it is. It could be a visible mark. It could be anything. We aren't sure, but everybody knew that would come in contact with Cain that he was a marked man. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That had to be painful, to leave the Lord's presence. To, I mean, it's one thing to be banished and wander the earth as a homeless person where you can't even make a living for yourself from the ground, but to be banished and leave the presence of God, what a hopeless existence it has to be. But there's nothing new under the sun, is there? So Cain left the Lord's presence, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Wait a minute. Now we have the first appearance of Cain's wife. So there was another person? <gasps> yes. Again, more than likely, a descendant of Adam and Eve because there were no other humans on the earth. And so Cain had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Okay, so now... Though he's a wanderer and homeless, he founded a city and he's earning a living from those who can till the ground and herd the shepherd or the sheep and those kind of things. Enoch had a son named Irad. Irad became the, this is going to be really hard for me. I'm trying to pronounce the names correctly, but just bear with me. Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael. Methushael became the father of Lamech. Oh, and here's where it gets really fun. The first time in Scripture we read where one man marries two women. Woohoo! Anybody? No? Okay. Lamech married two women. Well, that has to be good news, right? No, because guess what happens next? Not because he married two women, but listen to what happens. The first wife was named Adah, and the second was Zilhah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, Jabal, who was the first of those who raised livestock and lived in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who played the harp and the flute. Lamech's other wife, Zilhah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He, named, uh, he became an expert in foraging tools of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain had a sister named Namah. And one day, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. Has your husband ever said that to you? <laughs> Listen to me, you wife of Brendan. 
That would not bode well. <laughs> Have you ever said that, Alan, to Sarah? You're going to use it from now on. Yeah, tell me how that works out. Please, it'll be fun. Again, perpetuating the fall. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Do we see Lamach having this sense of rulership over his wives? Yes. I've killed a man who attacked me, he says to his wives. A young man who wounded me. It's merely a flesh wound, though. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then someone who kills me will be punished 77 times. Is that Lamech saying that or God saying that to Lamech about the guy he killed because he wounded him? Do you see somebody taking the law into their own hands? <laughs> that typically doesn't play out well either. Because that's what we do, right? Because he knew that his great, great, I don't know, you can figure it out. I didn't count them up. Grandfather, Cain, had killed someone and had been banished from the land. And he was now a descendant of Cain. And he remembers the story about how God had cursed Cain, but also had given him a mark. And that mark was to keep anybody else from killing Cain. But that came directly from God. And now Lamech takes him takes his own self and becomes his own God, his own ruler, and says, if this happened to Cain, then anyone who kills me will be 77 times worse off than me. Anyone who kills me will be punished 77 times. Oh, the cycle of sin that continues. And then verse 25, Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. And when Seth grew up, he had a son named, and named him Enosh. And at that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. Not Cain's clan, <laughs> but through Seth. And actually, if you go to the genealogies of our New Testament and the Gospels, uh, if it's, please forgive me, Matthew or Luke, they both have the genealogies. I believe it's Luke counts all the way back to Adam, the, the lineage of, Je of Jesus, through the line of Seth as well. Jealousy is a very destructive force. Jealousy within families often springs up. It's not only jealousy with your coworkers, jealousy uh, with spouses or those kind of things, but jealousy within families ends up breeding dysfunction, which leads, which leads to destruction. And uh, sad but true, one of the more common places I see this playing out is when somebody has died and the family comes together and they're planning the funeral, but then the days, weeks, and months after the death of that loved one, when they're settling the estate and they're, they're determining who gets what, is when jealousy really arises. And I see some of the most ugly fights and destructive behaviors after the death of a loved one all over material things. Our children can tell you who they think is my favorite among the four of them. 
And they can also tell you that my wife has a list of favorites. Is that right? Yeah. Sorry, I point you said it was okay if I point you out sometime. Hey, my daughter's over here. Woohoo! Um, but they think they've got it figured out. Dad's favorite is this one. The second favorite's this one. The third and the fourth favorite are this. And then uh, mom's favorite is this one, this one, this one, this one. And so you see how this kind of plays out. The reality is, no, they're not all my favorite, but they are all loved equally. They are loved differently. And why are they loved differently? Because they are different individuals who receive love differently. The way I love one of my children may not be received as love by another one of my children, and so I have to adapt to that kind of love. Do I do a good job of it? No. They'll tell you I don't do a great job of it all the time. As a matter of fact, I oftentimes miss the mark with them more than I hit the mark with them. Again, every family has a level of dysfunction, and sometimes it's due to laziness. Jealousy causes an unhealthy obsession with me over and against a focus on God. You know what jealousy does? When you get jealous, guess, guess where your focus goes. See, we think that it's about this situation and that we, we are projecting outward an inner feeling about something that bothers us. Jealousy is us wanting what somebody else has, and typically it's wanting the thing that somebody else has, not something like it, but the actual thing that that person has. In the situation of Cain and Abel, Cain wanted the approval from God and the acceptance of the gift that Abel got but didn't get. Cain, in essence, was rejected. Why? Not because God was playing favorites, but because God knew the hearts of people, specifically Cain and Abel in this situation. And he knew that Cain was just doing the rote motions of going through the cycle of, all right, I'm going to give God some of what I got. Now, Jesus does this a lot. You, you look in the New Testament, and Jesus makes distinctions between people. Why? Because God looks upon the heart and not on the outward appearance. I mentioned this this morning in my class. You would find the religious leaders and the wealthy, pat or, uh, the wealthy part, uh, patrons of the temple would come clanging cymbals and have a parade and fanfare when they're bringing their money to the offering at the temple. If they wanted to be known, hey, look, I'm giving $100,000. We don't do that today. We don't put names on pews or buildings or anything like that. But back in that day, they wanted to be known. And they would make themselves known with great fanfare. And they didn't have paper money. They had coins like silver in gold and bronze coins that were stamped out. And that I have told you before, in the temple courts and all around the temple, there would be these differing, different offering jars that would stand three to four, sometimes five foot tall, actually not five foot, three to four feet tall. And they would take their bags of money and they would dump it in these large jars. Do you think it made a noise? Yeah. Look at me! I'm so humble for giving all of my money to the Lord. 
right? What does Jesus say about that? They're getting all the reward they ever hope to get because they're only doing it for show. And everybody that sees them is giving them acknowledgement, but they're not getting the acknowledgement that really counts from God. You imagine some people would be kind of jealous of these people carrying these huge amounts of money into the temple courts. Or, or what about the other scenario where Jesus says, you know, you've, you've seen people stand on the, on the street corners with their hands. I mean, this is, this is a holy stance. It is. Come on, everybody. It feels more holy to do this, right, than to do this. But anyway, I digress. But they would stand on the street corners and say, oh, Lord, I beseech thee. Because they spoke in Elizabethan in Jesus' day. And they, they would scream out these prayers to God. And they would make these dramatic movements. Oh, Lord. You think I'm joking. But that's what they would do. Because they would want to be seen as a person of holiness than actually live like a person of holiness. And Jesus says, they're getting their just rewards now, but they're not the kind of rewards that are eternal. You see, jealousy drives us to do things that are inward focused. Things that would get us recognition, but when somebody else gets the recognition we think we deserve, we get angry. Has someone gotten recognition that you feel you deserved? What does it do to you? <laughs> Warning, sin is crouching at your door. Oh, it so longs to devour you, but you need to control it and be its master. What do you do with that? When somebody else is getting what you feel that you deserve, when somebody else is getting the credit, Do you ask yourself, do I really deserve the credit? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But the enemy does a great job about getting us to go down this path in our own minds, in our way of thinking, to say, you deserve this more than they do. They got the promotion? You've been working your butt off. Did your boss not see this? Or, or, or as, as a child, you know, your, your sibling gets punished, or you get punished for something your sibling did. I'm sure that never happened to any of you guys, right? But, but it was really them. And I'm not saying there's not injustice in the world. Please don't mishear me. But the enemy would love nothing more than to take that injustice, to bury it deeper in your heart so that you become more resentful, more bitter, more angry, because if he can get that seed of bitterness and resentfulness and jealousy sprouting into something more than a seed and a sapling, if he can get it to grow and get its roots deep in your life, what do you think he could do to you? It all starts with a focus on me rather than God. And we might say it's about somebody else who's getting more than what we get or getting what we deserve. But the reality is we've taken our eyes off Christ and we focused it on me. That's the destructive nature of jealousy. Jealousy has a way of not only killing us, but also our relationships. Jealousy 
not only kills us, but our relationships. You may not realize this, but when you allow jealousy to be so embedded in you and it snuffs out the goodness in your own life and you allow it to take over, it's like a weed in your garden. Before long, if you don't tend to the weed when it's really little, what happens to the root structure of the weed in your garden? It goes around the rest of the roots of the good growth there, and it will strangle out the nutrients it'll take from the goodness of that plant that you really want to grow and produce a harvest for you. This is when unforgiveness, bitterness, jealousy, envy, all of these things that, which are spoken against uh, not only in the Old Testament but the New Testament. And it, yes, it kills you. You don't realize it because it's a slow death. It's like... I'm with my kids most of the time, and they're with, you're, we're all together. Grandparents live in Kentucky, and so a few months might go between the time that we get to see them. And what is one of the things we often hear when the grandparents see the kids for the first time in a while? My, how you've grown. You've gotten, oh my gosh, you've gotten bigger, right? See, this is what sin does to us. Because if it gets a hold of us, it's a slow process that we don't always realize or acknowledge until sometimes it's too late and we are so deep into it that it has mastered and controlled us when we should have been mastering and controlling it. Like the grandparents who see, oh my gosh, you've gotten bigger, but we've neglected to see it. Sin can often do that. And we need a wake-up call at times. To jolt us into reality and say, oh my goodness, look where I was, where I am now, and how far I am from God and what his perfect ideal is for me. Not that I'm going to be perfect in the way the world considers perfect, but I've got some work to do. Let's take courage from James in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. God blesses those who patiently endure, te endure testing and temptation. What does James say? He patiently, what does he do? God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Who's blessed? Those who endure what? Testing. How many of you like going? To, how, how many of you like tests? <laughs> I hate them. Right? I hate them. I hated them in school. I hated them in college. I hated them in seminary. I don't like it when somebody tests my patience. I mean, I just don't like tests. But the reality is, tests have a place in life to see what your knowledge is and whether you can pass. And see, the interesting thing is God gives us the answers to the test because the answer's always in him. And if we are with the answer giver, we're not going to fail the test. It's when we step away from the one who has the answers that we fail the test. And no, it's not cheating when we rely on him. But the consequences of not relying on him are really bad. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation Afterward, they will receive a crown of life that God has promised those who love him. And remember, here's a good one. When you are being tempted, don't say that God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. 
the desire or temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Where does temptation come from? It's not like God, because I hear this a lot, God's, oh, God's really raking me over the coals today. No, temptation is knocking at your door, and it seeks to devour you, but you must master and control it. What does he go on to say? These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's not good. See, this is a part of that breaking the cycle. In the Old Testament, they had a thing called generational sin. It would be passed on from generation to generation to generation. And it's not that God would curse every generation. The reality was, due to the sinful nature, is that things get passed on because we model behaviors that we know. I model behaviors of my stepdad that were completely dysfunctional in how to raise a son. That's why in 2007, the first year of my son's life, I started spiraling. I had a great connection with my mom. I felt like I could connect with ladies a lot better because I had a good affinity with my mother. Yes, I'm a mama's boy. But I didn't know the relationship dysfunctions of not having a strong, solid, godly man in my life. Until 2007, and I realized I've got a son, and I started having panic attacks. Because I felt like I could raise a daughter, but I'm so ill-equipped to raise a son. It got so bad that Sarah Lee almost left me. Not for good, but for a while. Because I was unbearable to be with. Because the demons I had allowed to grow within myself of the dysfunction of my own childhood started having control over my children and my spouse. I was angry all the time. Never abusive, but I was verbally hateful to the point that it became very destructive. Yes, and I was in my first senior pastorate. Good times. I felt like a fake, a fraud. And I kept devolving into this beast that I had allowed to control me. Instead of dealing with it through the grace of God, my pride got the better of me because I couldn't really admit that I was jealous of those that had a good father. I was jealous of the ones that actually had a dad stay in the picture. I was jealous of the ones who could actually go fishing or hunting and actually make mistakes in front of their dad without getting ridiculed, mocked, or scorned. And I continued to spiral until the point that I couldn't even live with myself anymore. Never got suicidal, but you know you can get to a point where you're like, everybody would be better off without me. 
And I would figure out, God, you've got to figure out a way to take me out. I'm no good to anybody. I'm no good to myself. The church I'm pastoring, I mean, like, I'm going to do any good there. So you might as well just take me out of commission. You know how you can convince yourself? The temptation, the sin that crouches at your door, seeks to devour you, to get you to believe a lie. See, we're no different than Cain, are we? Jealousy has a way of not only killing us, but killing our relationships. You may think it's only hurting you. You may think you're the only one dealing with whatever you're dealing with, but the reality is if you are... If you have even a coworker in your life, you have a ripple effect of influence. And how do you wield the influence that you have? Is it destructive or is it productive? Last, the ultimate consequence of jealousy, consequences of jealousy or isolation and loneliness. Where did Cain find himself? <clears throat> Wandering aimlessly as a homeless person not good, not able to make a living for himself, literally living off other people's generosity if there was, was anybody out there who would be generous enough to him. Jealousy, when it's had its course with us, envy, the depths of sin and temptation in our own lives will lead us so out into the wilderness and leave us for dead if we're not careful. It's destructive. Walter Brueggemann, let me conclude with this before I get into our concluding statements. Walter Brueggemann is a biblical scholar and author. In his commentary on Genesis, he writes, <clears throat> Biblical faith is clear. Violation of the brother is a deathly act. He's talking about Cain. Yet, God's will for life is at work with the other under this death sentence. Think about this. What did God have every right to do when Cain violated his brother by killing him? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? That's what we get when we get to Moses and the law of Moses. But the God supersedes the law. It's from the law, it's from God that the law emanates in the Old Testament. So what did God have every right to do to Cain as soon as this happened? He had every right to strike him down and leave him for dead, to snuff him out of existence. Do you notice what God does? He doesn't kill him. Yes, there's a curse put upon his life, which is a natural result of the sin that Cain had been a part of or had enacted on his brother. But what does God do? Cain is scared senseless. You banished me from the ground. I'm not going to be able to earn a living. And now if I go out and about, people are going to kill me. What does God do? He puts a mark on Cain, and I think it's a mark as an act of mercy to show that even the worst of sinners in God's eyes 
are still loved and redeemable. Doesn't mean you won't suffer the consequences of your behavior like Cain did, but it does mean that God's grace can be sufficient for you even in spite of the consequences you've incurred because you've allowed sin to master and control you when you should have controlled it. See, it's never too late. As much as you think, as much as you think and have convinced yourself or allowed the enemy to convince you that you are so far gone or that somebody else in your life is so far gone they are beyond God's redemption, you have been deceived by the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. In our lives, sin leaves a mark. What did Jesus have in his resurrected body that he told Thomas to come and touch? It was a result of the sins of humanity that he now in his resurrected body bears the marks of crucifixion which stand today as a representation of our salvation when we believe in him. Thomas, come, place your hand in my side. You were blessed because you've seen and now believe. Blessed are those who have not seen this and yet believe. Through the blood of Christ and our faith in him, the mark we can now live under is God's grace and mercy through salvation in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to fear judgment that is to come because those of us who are in Christ are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We live in a sense of not haughtiness and pridefulness, but we walk in humility, this walk of faith, pointing and reflecting the grace of God on our lives. He must become greater and I must decrease. Remember John the Baptist. Jesus fully and completely took the wrath of God's judgment upon himself. And the mark we now must carry is the mark of salvation in Christ. He broke the curse of sin. Yes, even the curse of Cain's sin. The danger of death was mitigated through the blood of Christ for all who would surrender their lives to him in complete repentance. So the question I have as our worship team comes forward today, what kind of control does sin have on your life? What kind of control does sin have on your family? You can't control anybody else in your relationships but you. God has not given you authority over anybody else but you at this point. Because it's you and you alone who will stand before Christ someday at the judgment seat. And you'll either hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, or Get away from me because I never knew you. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Be reconciled to one another. You cannot force that, but as much as it depends on you, you can. So in your family relationships, in your marriages, in your friendships, in your co-workers' relationships, if you even dare say you have friendships with your co-workers, How's all that working out? You see, the enemy, as they always say, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. How's he doing in your family? How's he doing in your life? 
Jesus says that he has come to bring life abundantly. And though we all have a level of dysfunction, we're all called to wholeness and holiness within our relationships. But it starts with us first. Jesus says, get the plank out of your own eye before you start to get the speck out of somebody else's. It's only when you deal with the plank in your own eye that you're able to help a brother or sister with the speck in their own eye. He doesn't say don't touch the speck. We've gotten into this position, though, as humanity to where we say, oh, who am I to, you know, do X, Y, or Z? No, no, no. Jesus never said don't. He just says deal with your own issues first before you go to anybody else about theirs. Then you have the proper perspective and humility to go and to talk to somebody else. Our altars are always open. And you've heard me for 10 years say, come to my right, your left. Lay your burdens down here. If you need help, you need prayer, you don't know how to do this thing called faith, or you don't know how to let go of this thing called unforgiveness, jealousy, frustration, anger, whatever held sway over you, whatever you've opened the door to to come into your life that shouldn't be there, somebody's willing to pray with you and help you. We may not have all the answers, but we can lead you to one who does. And if you just want to pray alone, you come to my left, you're right. Nobody's going to bother you over here. You can come and make peace with God yourself. You can work through things. And again, it's nothing magical about these pieces of furniture. The reality is, is making a life transformation today in the here and now, wherever you are. So if you feel that still small voice in your ear, tugging at your spirit, your heart, Don't reject it. Lean into it and say, here am I, Lord. Father, in this place, we know you're present because two or more have gathered in your name. Maybe not everybody here, but two or more we know at least have. And God, we know that there's nothing more that you desire than to extend mercy and grace. If you can extend it to somebody like Cain, we know that you can extend it to somebody like us. We're broken, we're dysfunctional. God, we're a mess, sometimes more than others. But God, we know that you're willing to step into the mess with us and clean it up. Sure, we have responsibility, but you're not afraid of our messes. You're willing to help us get out of that which we have found ourselves stuck in to work toward a sense of wholeness and peace as much as it depends on us God help us to live at peace with others in our lives create within us clean hearts and renew right spirits within each and every one of us I pray in this place for it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray Amen Thanks for joining us this week Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. 
Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.